You're listening to audio from First Christian Church. To find out more about us or to donate to our ministries, visit firstabq.org. I have met a lot of first-time visitors today, so if you are a guest today, you get our best welcome. We are so glad that you're here. In fact, if you're a guest, you probably should stick out your hand and just greet someone because you might be meeting another guest. So members, you stick out your hands, give a little fist bump, whatever's appropriate at the time, and welcome those that are with us. We also give a big wave to those that are online. We're thankful, so thankful for you to take the time to fight the technology, get online, and join with us here in this venture into God's Word. Our reading today comes from Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. You were dead. Now wait, wait just a second. What? We've got to stop right there. You were dead? I mean, what world is Paul living in? Let's just get three words out. You were dead. He's applying that they once were dead. Okay, that's not the way you talk to people. I mean, you greet people like I greeted people, right? Kind of warmly. And he looks at them and tells them that they're dead. Well, if they were dead, then stop the presses. The real story is let's talk to them. Because if you died and then you're now alive again, you are the lead story. Am I right? So Paul needs to sit down and talk to them. Let them tell the story. Well, there are people in this room that have had near-death experiences. Could be from some kind of an accident. It could be a time when your heart actually stopped on the surgery table. This could be medical or mechanical or miracle that brings you back from death, right? We could, we could go around the room and tell some of these near-death experiences. But I don't understand why Paul would say to them, you were dead. I mean, they're not dead. Is he trying to call them zombies? Now, we know zombies are, are fictional, right? But, but these are, are, some say, well, I don't know about that. Yeah. Uh, fictional characters, corpses that have been revived. They've been brought back to life. They have no rational capacity. They only have movement. So is Paul calling this group of people zombies? Now you're probably kind of saying, all right, Brady, get over it already. We, we know what's going on. Paul's speaking spiritually, right? That this is about spiritual death. That this is about death in sins or trespasses. They're not really dead. And we look around and we say, well, you know, we're not dead, right? We're very much alive. I'm not dead. Don't call me dead. I can go where I want to go. I can buy what I want to buy. I mean, what I can afford. I can experience and do whatever I want. I am alive. If I want to have a very expensive cocktail or a cheap beer, I can do that. I'm alive. If I want to hire a prostitute, I can do that. 
If I want to seduce someone, I, I'm alive. I could, I could do that. I'm alive. I am not at all dead. What in the world is Paul talking about? What planet is Paul from? Well, let's leave Paul for a second. Let's come back to us. When it comes to you and I, we construct a world. We live in a world that's kind of our own choosing, where we're able to set the parameters of what we do and what we don't do. Now, I don't know how you have arranged your world, but maybe it's one of these few ways. Maybe you have constructed your world in terms of numbers, that it's about data and statistics and algorithm. And what you're doing in your world of algorithms and data is crunching these numbers, squeezing these numbers to get out of it the information that you want so that you can choose whether you're going to go this way or that way. You take these numbers and try to make sense of them of how you might live in the world. Maybe your world is all about numbers. Maybe your world is all about words. You're researching. You're studying. You're checking out the information and the news reports. Maybe you're checking out both sides, trying to verify what one person says and what another person says, trying to bring them into comparison and into dialogue. Or maybe you're just like, no, I'm just going to look at one side. I'm going to close my ears and not listen to anyone else. I'm going to be someone that's just building my own case. I'm going to be making my own argument. When it talks about maybe a lawyer and Lady Justice being blind, well, I'm just going to be blind to everything but my own opinion. I'm going to blind my eyes to everything except what satisfies me, what agrees with me, what helps build the world that I live in. Maybe the words, if you're constructing your world with words, are about sales. I know how to talk to people. I know how to say just what they might want to hear so that they might buy the product. I try to determine who they are and what they're about. I use these words to sell them what maybe they want and need or maybe that they don't yet know that they need. I use words in that way. Maybe you use words to construct a world for your patients. You're trying to help them understand these made-up words that are so hard to say and pronounce, trying to help them understand what's wrong with them, trying to understand even the medicines that they're to swallow or poke in their body. And so you use words that connect with them to help the patient know what to do, how to respond to the treatment plan. Words. We construct worlds with words. Maybe those don't fit with you. Maybe you live in a world that's constructed by images. What you can see. You find yourself immersed in a video game. An immersive video game. Maybe a, a first-person shooter game. Maybe it's a world-building game. Maybe it's the sport that you always wished you could go just a little bit further. And so you're in this world of sports in this video game that surrounds you with images. And even if I bring it up now, you might already be there, thinking about where you last saved the game, where you left off, how you might move to the next level. 
And you're headed off on that track. You're chasing that down even in your own mind at this moment. Maybe the images that you think about are images of the place that you want to go. The people that you want to be with. That beach scene, those sculpted bodies, those muscles, those enhanced parts. Your world is of images, of things that you can see and that you might want. Images. Numbers, words. We construct our worlds in many, many ways. Some of you sit back, cross your shoulders and say, well, I have to do all of those. I'm a student. I have to be good in math and I have to be good in English and I have to do the language and history. I have to do all that stuff. I can't construct my world because my world is imposed upon me. Well, whether you're constructing your world with numbers or words or images, Paul looks at us and says, you're dead. And today you might have drug yourself here to this place feeling dead, feeling dry, feeling like, well, yeah, I I connect with that. I'm already there. I'm feeling like the living dead in this moment. When we're in these kind of moments, we find ourselves kind of just making our way through life. As Paul writes in this second chapter, we might find ourselves in three ways that we're just kind of floating along in the course of life. We've got the job, we go to job, we save, we take care of our family, we work, we put in the hours, maybe we get a day off, maybe not, and then we do it all over again. We're just floating along in the course of life, we're doing what's We're told what's supposedly right for us to be doing, but we're just floating along in the course of the world. Maybe we're following the rulers of the air, as Paul calls them. We're looking at the world stage and we're fearful of this place and that place, this leader and that leader, wondering what's going to happen, wondering what's going on behind the scenes of things that we cannot control. We're carried along by the ruler of the age. Or maybe, like many of the examples I've already given, we're driven by desire, we're driven by passion, and that is what is ruling our life at this time. Well, we set Paul down for a little while. I want to pick Paul back up. I want to go back into this, because if he's making this claim that that we're building these worlds and that we choose this world, I want to know is there something bigger? Which is what we've been about over these last several weeks, right? With this series called The God Project. We're looking bigger. We're looking at how we're involved in something beyond ourselves, beyond even the small group of people that we might put around us. And so The God Project has shown up on our digital sign and on the webpage, and you can see it printed in the bulletin or in the app, the Church Center app. What is this God Project of God's work to gather up all things, all people, into the name of Jesus Christ. This cosmic reality that's being created that's as vast as the stars and as involved as the cells and the atoms within our own body. This project where God wants to put at work within us His power. The same power that raised Christ from the dead. Let's try again then. 
Let's look at Paul piece by piece at what he's saying to us in Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to try again in verse 1. I'll read more than the three words. You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in the passions of the flesh, following the desires of the flesh and the senses. We were, by nature, children of wrath, like everyone else. That's kind of the journey that we've been on so far today. Being dead, being controlled, dictated and guided by our own mistakes, by the problems that we've faced, by even the desires and passions that we have within our own hearts. You know, there's lots of different lords that are out there. And a lot of us might be driven by the God of I want. Not the true and living God, but the God I want. Where whatever I want becomes the God that I want to serve. That I'd rather serve I want God than the true and living God. That God becomes something of my spirit master, following my passions wherever they take me, whether it's money or power or sex. We want what we want. Sometimes our true Lord is a desire for food or for pleasure. Something within us where we're dictated and led by this desire. And I've said many times before, desire is not bad, but desire is a terrible master. If we let desire be our Lord and be our master, we don't know where it will take us and where we will go. We sometimes serve the real God of our senses, of what we can taste, see, what we can feel. Not the living God, but the God that is as close as our touch. Well, that's where Paul goes in these verses. I want us to keep reading. Is that okay? Let's pick up in verse 4 for this second section. First section, you were dead. Here's the second section. Verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy and out of great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. We were dead, but God made us alive. Through his mercy and his grace. To say, like I did in those first three words by reading Paul, you were dead, is to imply that now we're alive. That that's something in the past, that the present tense of where we are right now is alive. And this is something that God does. This comes to happen and comes to be because of the action of God where God reverses the power flow of what we expect and gives us life. 
Because if you talk to some Christian zealots, they're going to make you feel like trash. If you talk to some atheists, they may make you feel like trash as well. Because the common misconception among religious zealots or among atheists is that God is a big, angry God. One in the clouds that's ready to judge you and condemn you and bring out and wreak out vengeance upon you at every turn and at every opportunity. The surprise of this passage for those religious Christian zealots, and maybe even for those who've turned their back on God entirely, is that we don't see that God in this place. What we see is a God who looks at us in our death, in our incapacity, and pours out his rich mercy on us. We see this God of great love. And the surprise is that God is not quick to offer wrath. He's not quick to offer judgment and condemnation and vindication of his own just spirit. Instead, he pours out the richness of his mercy. God chooses mercy. And he makes us, pay attention to this one, he makes us alive in Christ He raises us up with Christ. Sounds like resurrection from the dead, right? And he seats us with Christ in the heavenly places. That's the trajectory of what God wants to do with your life. And the contrasts are stunning. In verse 1, that we're dead. And then in verse 5, we're made alive in Christ. In verse 3, that we're guided by our passions and our desires with the contrast in verse 6 that we live for Christ. Or the contrast in verse 3 that we're children who are given to disobedience. I know none of your children disobey. But we're children given to disobedience in verse 3, but in verse 6 we're seated at the right hand of God. Again, I hear the whispers of the religious zealots, the atheists. Oh yeah, that's yours if... If you're good enough, if you do it right, if you deserve it, if you're thankful enough, yeah, these things can be yours, if all of those things, if you become a better person. But instead, the way God works is that God is motivated to save before any of that. God saves us by grace through faith, It is not the result of our own works. Well, that brings us to our third thing. We were dead. God made us alive in Christ. And the third thing, I'm going to pick up in verse 8 and read these last few verses. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. This third thing that I want you to catch, not just that you were dead and that you are now second made alive in Christ, but third, that you were created for good works. That's the plan for you. That's the intention of what God has laid out for you. The gift of salvation, the gift of God's grace, enables us and allows us to do good works. Now, if you look closely in those verses, it's easy to get confused about what works 
are supposed to do, right? And so here's what I want you to hear, this slight turn of phrase here. Grace is not the result of works. All right? Grace is not the result of your good works. You flip that around. Grace is for good works. So it's a cause and effect thing. Your good works do not cause God to be more gracious to you. No. God saves you. God gives his grace to you freely and enables you to exist in this environment of grace. It excites you for good works. Do you see the difference there? Grace is not the result of your good works. As much as those voices in your ear want to tell you that, as much as even Christian voices from public podiums like this might try to make us think, it's not the result of our good works. It is for the purpose of good works. This is what we're to be about. In verse 10, we're about these movements of God that happen before we do anything. That God created us for the purpose of good works. If you ever wonder what God's product is, of what God's trying to produce, it's you. It's you. He made us alive, even though we were dead, and created us for good works. If you want to know what God is producing in this world, it's you. You're the masterpiece. You're the one who's been prepared by God to do good works. And if you need to take this further, think about this. Whose idea was salvation? God's. It's not your idea, even if you respond to it. It's God's initiative. Who, who, who is the one providing mercy? It's God. Who is the one providing grace? It's God. God, God, at every time, it is God that turns to us. And so we have to imagine what our lives would look like if we really believed that salvation was God's gift to us, that it was God's idea. What would our life look like? Because our lives don't often look like they're fashioned for good works. Instead, we choose to construct these worlds. And let me give you some examples. Sometimes we choose to believe and project lies. Lies about our life, lies about what's going on in the world. We choose to live in lies. And if you choose the path of lies, you're choosing the path of death and decay. When your words do not match up with your action, it doesn't matter how many times you shift and change and move around, you have chosen the way of death. That is a disease that will decay you from the inside out. If you choose to live with lies and be satisfied with lies, it will kill you. Some of us choose to live into whatever we can take. Ah, I deserve this one. No one really needs this. I work hard for this company. When we choose to take things that do not belong to us, whatever they are, it's like acid in our hands. It may not initially burn us, but eventually it will. It will eat us from the outside to the inside. If we choose to live where, ah, I know it's a trade secret, but I'm an independent person. I'm free. 
When we choose to take what's not ours, we are killing ourselves. We're choosing the way of death. If we choose relationships that are all about ourselves and we make every little petty argument something that needs to be our victory, if we become self-absorbed and that relationship is whatever you can grab, whatever money, whatever pleasure, whatever you can take from it because I deserve these things, those relationships will die. Now what's needed is to put these things that we think are so important on the compost pile, to let them die, to let go of them, to let go of our need to control them and make everything work out the way we intend for it to come out. It doesn't really matter what we do to try to get other people to like us. Ultimately, that does not matter. Seeking the God who lives and reigns with Jesus, the God who prepares for us a way of good works, that is a good life. He's prepared that way of life for us from the very beginning of time. And so it's, it's less about what we can put in the bank. It's, it's less about the score or the level that we can reach in the game. It's less about a metaverse of our own construction and more about being involved in something that's meant to heal us and make us better. Being involved in a God who has given us life and wants to give us even more grace, immeasurable amounts of grace. We will not be able to divide, to, 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 to save ourselves, to get people to like us. We will not be able to win approval. Their opinion does not matter. God's opinion does matter. But it's a matter of whether or not we're going to choose that life. I came across a guy named uh, Charles Blondin. Now you're probably not going to know who Charles Blondin is. He was in the 1800s. He was the most famous acrobat in the 1800s, and he, he was the one that made famous walking across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. This guy did it hundreds of times, walking across on his own, never had a net, sometimes with a bag over his head, pushing wheelbarrow, doing a headstand out in the middle of it. This is like an 1100, 1300-foot cable. He even set up chairs and things that he would sit out there, and sometimes the chair would fall off, and he didn't fall. Well, there was one particular time when he had a wheelbarrow, and he, he carried a guy all the way across. All the way across. And people are just horrified. Mark Twain called him an idiot, a lunatic. So Charles, the great blondin, gets to the other side, and he's just dumped this guy out of the wheelbarrow, and he looks at somebody in the crowd, and he says, do you believe that I could carry you across? And the guy said, Yep. It's like, okay, well, let's go. No way. <laughs> Not on your life. Now, I have to admit, I'd probably be in his shoes, right? But I bring that story up just for that comparison. We look at God, and we believe that God can take care of us, that God can take us in places that we can't go on our own. And we believe it. It's a mental ascent. But as far as our willingness to get on God's back and go, we're like, nope, I'm not going to do it. I can't trust it. It's too risky. We have built another world, and it's a world that we want to control. We want to keep on dry ground, firm land. We're not going to trust God to take us where we don't want to go. Here at First Christian, I want us to be a group of people 
that are known as a people-producing church. I mean, you know what our mission statement is. You know what we're about, right? What is it? Follow Jesus. If you are a guest and you're interested and curious about God and curious about following Jesus, that's who we are. We are just like you in the messy, rough-and-tumble world trying to learn how to follow Jesus. I'd like us to not only follow Jesus, but when this community looks at us, I want them to know that we're the most honest, the most respectable, the most dependable, most serving people. I want people to look at us and think, you know, I know she is not Christ, but she is the closest representation I have ever seen. Right? That, that's what I want Albuquerque to know first Christian for. The kind of people that we produce. And I think that's what God is all about. Taking us in our death, making us alive, and involving us in the good works that he's prepared for us to do. Not because we're earning it, not because we can hold it over other people's head, but because it's just like God. It's just what God does. And there are lots of opportunities for you. Last week we began signing up for things. and I, I want to highlight one that you're going to hear about again. That's children's ministry. We need people in a wide variety of capacities to teach our kids, to check our kids in, to help out to be a part of curriculum. There are lots of little ways that you can be involved with our children's ministry. And Amanda's laid them out, and you're gonna see it a little bit more, so I won't say too much now. But as far as a people that are known by how we follow Jesus, this is one thing that's very important for our next generation, is how we produce those youngest minds, those youngest hearts, and point them into this journey that we're on, of following Jesus, producing people that are transformed where they're not known by death, even though we're not afraid of all those dead things in our life, those things that still pop up, right? We put them out there and show people we're real. We make mistakes too. It's okay. We're not saved by that. We're saved by where we're going, the kind of people that we are becoming, created by God for good works. Well, Paul has much to offer us. By the Spirit of God, we have seen that we are not dead. We were dead. And now we are alive, created for good works. Let's pray. God, I ask that you continue to work in our hearts, not just in these moments, but in the minutes and days and weeks ahead. Would you stir us towards love and good action? Would you draw us into the kind of sacrificial, sacrificial life that Jesus led, where he didn't have to stomp his foot, shake his fist, yell and scream, post meanness. No, he, he chose the way of letting people say what they wanted to and kill him. And yet, Father, you have made him alive. That is what we want in our hearts. By the power of Jesus, would you reign in our hearts? That same power that gives life to Jesus, would you give life to each one of us? And we ask this in Jesus' name, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God now and for all times. Amen.